Hello and thank you for downloading Iconocast. This episode is an interview with Greg Layden, Mike Hobrick, and Laurent Panay. And Laurent Panay is a friend of mine and also a friend of Greg's uh, who lives in Guadeloupe in the Caribbean. And he's a researcher who studies uh, certain funguses, but he's also very interested in different aspects of agriculture and farming. And so I asked him to join us for this because we are interested in how farming has changed and what are the different ways that we can harness the power of agriculture to help us fight global warming. It's a wide-ranging interview. So there were some issues about pollination, about biodiversity, about different ways that we can take advantage of weeds rather than just kill them off. So here we are with Mike, Greg, and Laurent. Yeah, I, I'm working on um, specific, specifically uh, uh, Colletotricum, which is a, a, a fungus that uh, is really worldwide. It's uh, attacking both tropical and, and temperate crops uh, everywhere in the world. So that's mostly what I'm working on. Uh, but recently, you know, we try to follow the fancy and get funded. So... Uh, we more and more investigate other fungi too, uh, and especially we try to 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 have a you know a one health approach to crop health, uh, which means a little bit of trying to understand how um, good health in the environment is just you know, leading to uh, good health for crops and things like that, and or how it can spill over. And things like that. So basically, this is what I'm working on currently, and I'm always trying to to have a look because yeah, uh, I, I I'm working in a, on a small tropical island in the Caribbean, uh, a French territory, Guadeloupe, mm-hmm. and and agriculture is really a small scale agriculture, mostly. I mean. 80% of uh, uh, farmers are small-scale farmers, family farmers, and and they do actually practice uh, agroecology of some sort, and they have very uh, biodiverse settings. Um, so we try to 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 work uh, for them, and try to understand how we can well help them uh, improve practices so that they can make a living, all while you know not not yeah trying to to keep the uh, agriculture clean sustainable and things like that one of the things that people talk about quite a bit and this is one of the things that kind of interests me especially when it comes to um, restorative agriculture is this idea that if everybody switched over to veganism then that would save the planet and that would stop global warming because cars cows would stop farting so I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the things that may be missing from that. My background is from northern Minnesota, the Red River Valley, which at one time was one of the largest uh, weed producers in the world. Has changed a little bit because of a rust that in, invaded um, a fungus. Um, so they can't really plant, they can plant barley and stuff like that. So we got plenty of beer, but the bread, bread and cereal is, is uh, kind of lacking right now. But there's so many different aspects for ag- large-scale um, agriculture that would have to replace the meat if we stopped eating meat. <clears throat> and i just kind of thinking in the springtime, the process would be to take the fields that have been sitting during the winter, um, whether they were uh, plowed before winter or if they were you know being plowed in the spring so you got one run through the fields with your tractor pulling an implement there and then you go through with your fertilizers and then you go through and you have your disc uh to plant the seed and then you go through again with your um pesticides and then you go through again with your um swatter your cutter and the combines and then you go through a final time for a final treatment in the fall so you got all these times where you're not only turning the soil and releasing carbon for agriculture but then you're also these are generally diesel um diesel tractors and so forth so you've got all those times that we're talking about where you're going through and you're adding carbon dioxide in into the atmosphere which is not really solving the problem 
but restorative agriculture, that's a little bit different. Are you familiar or you, do you have experience uh, studying in, in restorative agriculture? Um, well, so I, I'm really, really focused on, on crops. Mm -hmm. So uh, anything relating to to cattle or uh, animals uh, and is definitely not, not my strong point. Uh, but um, yeah, anyway, if we, if we if we think about agriculture, really we have to 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 have a look, to give a look at how it was done, say, 50 years ago, sometimes a bit earlier and see how it's done today and 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 have a measure of the consequences because there there have been consequences well with regard to to cattle uh, i can speak about the french situation uh, just after uh, the second war mm -hmm. uh, farmers they were uh, in systems that were involving both uh, breeding cattle and 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 crops and so Farms were smaller, and they were also very. Uh, they were cycling uh, the organic matter from uh, the cattle uh, into fertilizer. It was free, yeah. <laughs> uh, and this is something that disappeared. And and currently we we we, se we separated uh, pigs, cattle, uh, poultry, and and so we 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 gain in inefficiency, but then we lost uh, the use of natural fertilizer. Uh, and, and composting and, and things like that. W probably what we will need to do is to go back to some things that involves uh, bringing the nutrients back to the soil and try to keep a uh, healthy soil. So, yeah. Now, there's an interesting... Oh, go ahead. Oh, oh it's, it's fine. I was just pointing out to something else, uh, which is here. Uh, a lot of farmers are... Uh, oh, I, I'm not even sure we can call them fa farmers, but people can have cattle or pigs and, and do very small scale, small scale breeding of, of big animals sometimes. Uh, it's done on more or less on collective land. I mean, you, you don't have meadows or those people who have usually have uh, bigger heads, but if you have only one cow, uh, you put it there and next to the street, and and you you have its feed on on the grass, and anyway, it's helping everyone because cutting grass in in tropics is is a huge issue, mm -hmm. and and even breeding pigs like you you put your pig on 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 a tree under a mango usually so that it can feed on mango, uh, and things like that. So um, it's still involving a lot of. Uh, using resources that are not used anymore. If I if I think of mangoes. Today, uh, nearly nobody eats mangoes anymore. I mean, the, but this is a resource, and you can breed pigs on that. And and typically, this involves just cycling of natural resources that you you can produce meat with with that. Right. And so, yeah. Uh, so the the region in the region it's a bit special, uh, but you you can have a lot of uh, agricultural activity, not necessarily from professional farmers. But it's it's really yes, short short scale, and, and 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 usually when you kill the pig, you give meat to the to the neighbors and friends, and that's the way it works. It's still working that way. So yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think I eat mangoes. Just I, eat, yeah. I love mangoes, so I just want to let you know that 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 is a strong thing for some yeah. people still. Yeah. So speaking to what you both have said, uh, there uh, there's a a program here in Minnesota. Uh, first of all, traditionally, going back in a few years, if you go back, you know, a thousand years in Minnesota, there was no agriculture here to speak of. Uh, it just isn't a good place to grow food. And Native Americans who lived here were mainly hunter-gatherers. Uh, you could grow a little bit. Uh, but about a thousand years ago, um, some native forms of corn that could handle the colder weather kind of slowly crept in. So it depended upon which century you were in as to whether it was cold enough or warm enough. Modern farming, where anything that requires a lot of water, there's a line that goes through the United States from north to south. And to the west of it, you really absolutely have to irrigate. And to the east of it, it depends. And that line is goes right through Minnesota, so approximately. So uh, you can grow a farm. You can have a dairy farm in Wisconsin without ir irrigation, maybe. But you can't have a corn field or anything like that in Minnesota without irrigation. But if you look at a, there's a, a place in Minnesota 
uh, at the University of Minnesota that does a program called Forever Green. And what the, the, the um, people who do that pitch their idea and they have an interesting set of photographs, aerial photographs. So they show you the, a farmland every month of the year. And for five months, it's white from snow. And for two months, it's green, bright green from crops. That's seven months. For all the rest of the months of the year, it's brown because you've terminated your crops at the end of the year. That last pasture Mike talked about is a poison to kill your plants. And you haven't started plowing yet in the spring. So there's several months in the year where the soil is exposed and nothing's growing on it. And that's by design. Okay. Now, the Forever Green program and similar programs, what you do is you lay down a, a, a perennial. And the perennial has to be short enough that a machine can go over it because you're plowing a little bit or you're planting or harvesting a little bit in between. So it may not, uh, and also, I guess I would say that the, the crops on either side can't be too tall. So if it's corn, it chokes out the air, the, the sunlight, right? So potatoes and tomatoes and peppers and you know, all kinds of things, beans can be grown. And the problem with the, with the crop, the green crop, is that they produce seeds that we don't have a market for. In some cases, they're literally inedible, but they can be used as a lubricant or a fuel. But in many cases, they actually have taken, I think, some 25 species or of, of crop that were not edible a century ago. In the last 30 or 40 years, they've bred them to become edible, and they're avoiding using GMO technology just to avoid the argument about it. Yeah. So they're growing things, and they're, and there's not market for it, but... but that technique plus other techniques, we did a, a forum with some farmers recently from Minnesota, all different parts of Minnesota, they were all using this technique. So you would, Laurent, you would recognize these techniques as, as traditional. You know, you're going to grow a high diversity of crops. There's going to be in, in animals. There's going to be interaction between the crops and animals. It's going to be what people have always done. And what they say is when they sell their beans, they get about 10%, 15% less money for the beans. But when they sell all their, but when they, when they put together the amount of money they have to spend on fertilizer and termination chemicals and insecticides, their profit is about 10, 50% higher than if they were using the, techni the, the, the modern technologies. So they have a, a higher net. The problem is the corn, which is mostly what people grow around here, is bought and sold by giant megalomaniac corporations and they call the shots. They don't want this small scale horticulture going on. It's not even small scale. These farmers are, have pretty big farms. They don't want this kind of integrated cropping because it doesn't get them a steady flow through of that one product. And Mike, you probably know this better than I do, but I was just looking at this the other day. You know how much corn we grow in Minnesota that we eat? Probably about 10 or 20%. No, we're near 10%. Oh, really? It's like 5% wow. of what we eat. The rest of it is, is cattle feed. And yeah. ethanol. And the ethanol, of course, is both cattle field because the, the stuff, when you make ethanol, you get the stuff you feed your cows also, right? So, so but we eat about 5%, and almost all the corn we eat in Minnesota is grown in the county that I'm in, Manapin County. Uh, and it's just, you know, taken off the, we eat corn from Mexico, we eat corn from California, but the corn that we eat from Minnesota is almost none of it. I don't, I don't think we grow very good corn here. <laughs> it's our problem. Anyway, and you know, you know, one reason why we have, talked about these kind of things before is because we both have worked, Laura, in the situation of observing people having traditional ways of interacting with plants, mainly, and their animals, in often ways that are, we think, hundreds of years old, uh, traditions that go back pretty far, uh, and but at the same time have been adapted and altered through time as people have needed to. And uh, I think that, I think from my view, one thing we need to do is figure out how to measure these, how to measure these things, because it, I, it, these farms, these farmers we're talking to, they have better profits with their <laughs> methods, and they're more stable. And I thought was well, something else that was interesting. This is a, a forum with a bunch of environmentalists and a bunch of farmers. And the farmers each talked about what they did at length. It was an hour and a half, more than an hour and a half of time. And then when we were done, the farmers all said goodbye and went back to their work. And the environmentalists who ran the forum all looked at other people were saying, wow, those people are really smart. <laughs> and I thought, wow, in, in the United States, I think people who aren't farmers don't think of farmers as being smart. 
Uh, yeah, that's uh, probably a worldwide issue. It's probably worldwide, but they actually yeah. are. Yeah. They? You know, <laughs> I, I, I mean, um, well, I, I just have a paper that I, I apparently can't seem to to get accepted in traditional uh, journals, and and it, all what I did was just asking farmers, when do you remember this specific disease disease event in the last fifteen years? And so, well, farmers, they all uh, told me about these years when they lost the, completely the crops they, they had the, uh, great hope for, which is yam. And it's a very, very, it's a, it's a profit crop. I mean, here locally, uh, you can have a lot of money uh, by producing yams. And, well, they never had a single, uh, you know, hesitation about saying, well, in, in 2005, it was very terrible. And they each add their events of, of this specific disease. And it's amazing because every time I get this paper reviewed, the reviewers just say, how can you trust farmers? I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing because here, even with a, a very small plot, if you, if you have a good year, you can literally have thousands uh, of euros uh, worth in benefits just growing this crop. Mm -hmm. So, of course, if there is a disease and it wipes the complete harvest out, you will remember that year. I mean, there is no way you can forget about it. But apparently, for reviewers, it's really not, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> you know, one, one way to get around that might be, because I know what you're saying, the reason why people know the year is not because it happened, but because in that year it happened, their 11-year-old daughter couldn't go to school because they didn't have the cash to pay the teacher or something like that, right? There's there's all the other events in their life were changed because of this bad year. And everything, some of those things have very clear dates on them and their minds are very clear. You know, it's a, it's a holistic ecology of time that they're yeah. experiencing. And uh, I wonder if you had a, like a checklist that would make it look like you had verified it. <laughs> you know, like, how do you know that was a date? Yeah, that, you know. well, you, you know, uh, actually they were able, so um, usually most farmers have three to four varieties of yams, uh, often also different different species, and so they, they intercrop everything and they are able to say which yam, which variety uh, uh, they are growing, and they are also able to say, well, um, this this year the disease was on Pakala, which is the name of a variety. This year it was on Cabuza, and so they know about it uh, to levels that we usually, uh, right. as agronomists and scientists, don't even dig into. Right. And so the very fact that they they, they speak about the disease this way is is really yeah telling that they know what they are talking about, and and it's amazing and and yeah I guess I don't know why we we modern people they tend to think of farmers are really either uneducated or are really yeah but but when you when you just well work with them it it's always a, another picture that's coming mm -hmm. out and, and yeah that's amazing and yeah they they know they know the years when they had a, a really huge amount of disease uh, and actually the kind of results I get from that and then, uh, from these interviews are even better than you know because reviewers just keep telling me go back to the field sample the, the disease and I do that I've been doing that for years and there is always a small amount of this fungus and right. it does not necessarily translate into you know wiping the crop out uh, it's all Every every year it's here. Well, it's okay. Well, it's it's fine. The plants are the crop is growing fine. It's not a strain that you know uh, translates into into huge epidemics. And yeah, I can do that. I've done that. And and, and but what, what we know from this disease, we we are still not able after well, some some critics have been working on this disease on yams for decades, and we we are still completely not able to tell when the disease will happen will occur in the farm so what are the factors that you think cause an outbreak uh i would say that i still don't know um 
Uh, um, my guess is that, well, so recently uh, I've been just going back into the forest, not even fields, and just I began something everywhere, and the, the fungus was just here, here and there. Uh, basically, any kind of uh, vegetation strata, it was on the grass, on the bush, on, in the trees. It was everywhere. So my guess, and it's so, well, prevalence in, in natural vegetation is about 80%. Mm. Uh, in the fields, uh, weeds or crops, it's about 40%. So my guess is that actually there is a, a, a rain of spore, a continuous rain of spore coming to the fields. And the fields are basically, they are not free from this fungus, but it's, it's, it's receiving uh, all these spores. And once in a while, we get a, a strain that's particularly aggressive, and then there is a disease. And are, yams, are yams native to Guadalupe, or is this something that was imported? No. Also, they might not have a defense against those spores. Is yeah. That part of it, or? Well, it, it's, uh, there are actually half a dozen species and um so it's mostly uh, the most cultivated are uh, the, the greater yam which is coming from asia and there are also um uh, a species complex which is um, more more heavily cultivated in africa especially west africa uh, so both are cultivated here and there is also the um, uh, south american species trifida uh, which is not really cultivated anymore this time because of the virus but it, it's uh, it's native from here, and and when people get uh, uh, tubers, they try to to restart because it's 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 very people appreciate it, so you can sell it for a good price. And there are, there is also, I guess, some other species, uh, and there is even a, a wild species growing locally, but it's not really cultivated; it's more harvested in the wild. But I know it's here. I've never seen it. Never tasted it neither, but uh, yeah. So it's, there, there are many species here. Uh, yeah, it's it's also also just to, because of what you just noted that the yams being grown there are from three continents. If you you know count Asia, Africa, and the New World, and it's it's probably worth noting that the tradition of you know traditional farming is not really primordial farming. It, yeah. it's any given place where you have traditional like where I worked in the Etoria forest the main roots crop that people grew was uh cassava yep okay which is not African um in in uh where I worked there wasn't corn grown but in in the, to the east of there there's a fair amount of American corn native you know American corn grown um the uh tree crops included citrus from Asia and included mangoes here and there uh, in uh cash so anyway any given place in the tropics anywhere in the tropics as far as i know except for a couple of places in the highlands in africa you'll find that every single collection of foods is represents all the continents in the tropics that people grow right pretty much i mean there may there's, there's a uh in in in, in uh, the amazon and orinoco basins yam are uh um plantains are very big they're not from south america you know everywhere you go and what we know from early ethnography is that uh it's very hard to, to make these generalizations but it would appear that even at the organization of people whether or not people are hunter gatherers or where different groups language groups live was really influenced a lot by the early history of agriculture changing as these crops started being transplanted across different areas it was momentous change that occurred all around the tropics and the people have settled into their own version of traditional agriculture but the point being it is easy to say we city people see the farmers and we know they're stupid because you know they're not living in the city like we are or whatever yeah. it's also easy looking into traditional people doing traditional agriculture and horticulture and and think well that's the way it's always been and it's primordial and unchanging and it's maybe even almost like they know how to do it because it's just natural to know how to do it or something but it's actually transformative it has a deep and complex history that we only barely understand in some areas and it is hard to do yeah 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 it's, it's both actually current farmers but farmers in the past too they are experiencing they are experimenting themselves they are doing all this stuff 
not a huge scale, but trying to figure out if they can improve things. Sometimes it works, and they and, and then there is a shift when when they convince other farmer to do something else. Um, but it's true that uh, well, even in the Caribbean, there are many ways to to grow yams, and and from one island to the other, you can have some minor variation. But most of the time, it's grown the same. Um, but we we also do have some some shifts, and it can happen for for several reasons. Uh, here, typically, currently, uh, not many people grow yams anymore. I mean, yeah, many, but not. It could be it could be more, but it's very difficult to grow. And I, I guess farmers have, have it was too difficult to 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 make a living out of this crop, so they still grow it for cash reason, but uh, most do not specialize on it as a single source of uh, uh, revenue. And the, every everyone is doing the same. I mean, uh, the time you can sell your yam is December. So basically, um, even if several decades ago, uh, people were just growing it all over the year, currently they just plant it so that they can sell it in December when everyone is buying yam anyway. Uh, to a point we have to import and so yeah it, it can evolve a little bit but it's true that most of the time and even if you think of farmers uh here they they are um most of the, the average um yeah the the age the average age is about yeah 55 and most farmers are old people with a lot of experience about farming and i mean uh, it means also uh, they are hard to convince if you if, if you really succeed to find something better, but it's it's also much. Uh, there are yeah the odds that you find out something that you can really improve the the cropping system is is very low actually, and they have decades of experience and and usually they teach you. That's that's the point. They they have several decades of growing certain crops, and they know how to do that. Right. What what they don't know is if they do certain things that can increase disease risk, it can always help them and say, okay, you 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 are the expert on growing this crop, but if you put these two together, you increase the odds that uh, fungus that you find on one species will go on the other species. That you can help. Most of the time, they 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 are they are the most exper experienced people. They they do practice since decades, so they they have to teach you not the, the other way around. Yeah. Well, why 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 is there a big demand for yams in December? Um, I would say this is um, part of the local culture, uh, which is really you know. There are dates all around the, the year, and there are special events, mostly religious, and sometimes not. But uh, the the meal in December are really based on yams. Okay. It's you and and things like that. And so, the the, the price of yams really do increase uh, that time of the year. And and actually, it's it's good enough that you it it makes you plant uh, yams early in the season because it's about nine months to grow. And then it's just after the rain season. So usually when there is tuber feeling, it's there is no trouble. You will have a harvest. So I guess it's not only the fact that there is a high demand in December, even if it helps. It's also the fact that it's actually fitting with ecological conditions. So, but um, yeah. There's a West African yam tradition, yam festival tradition. You probably know the story that What's his name? Gunbar. We are mostly cultivating oh. the greater yam. Uh, yeah, the the, the yam. And the, yeah. the other African species, you can have both yields, two two yields. Mm -hmm. You take a first tuber and then you let another tuber. But it's um. So this is a yam that's cultivated throughout the year. Mostly, you you will find them uh, any time. Find it any time, and. Yeah, but in December it's a greater yam, and it's a uh, it's more the Asian species. With 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 yams, do you plant them like like potatoes? You know, where you um, where you section off like the first say section off the first crop crop, and then use those and cut them up 
and then plant them for the second crop? Or do you just start fresh with new? No, actually, you, you, it's, a, it's a vine, so you, you just get the tuber out oh. of the soil, and you leave the plants, and it's still growing, and it, it will just uh, make another tuber, uh, which you can either, if it's, if it's too small, you keep it for uh, as a seed for next year. Uh, if it's big enough, you, you can still have food, yeah. So, so I guess getting, getting back to Mike's original uh, impetus here for talking about this, uh, you know, I, 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 I get this, the, I get this sense that here in Minnesota, we are, our agriculture is contributing to global warming at a higher rate than anywhere else in the world, <clears throat> because for one thing, we're making a fuel you burn in cars with our agriculture. Um, although that's at least it's not petroleum, it's still, you know, as a, it, it facilitates that industry. We are, we are letting carbon out of the soil for several months out of the year. And that the amount of that carbon isn't that big compared to, you know, all the cars, but that's supposed to be a sink that absorbs carbon. And in fact, is negative, it's a negative sink. And, um, and then we're using a lot of energy to do the agriculture that we do, even though we could do it with way less energy than we use. Um, is it the case, is it fair or safe to believe that people in the Caribbean, for example, or elsewhere in the tropics, who are using a traditional horticulture are doing the opposite, that they're doing their agriculture and horticulture is not destroying the planet at a high pace? That's a huge question. <laughs> I would say no, uh, it tends not, but it's not a, yeah, you know, I, I was just thinking, um, Putting carbon into the soil is 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 easier in a temperate place because the soil life is stopped during winter time or nearly stopped, and then all the process of alteration, degradation, uh, humus formation, humification, and things like that uh, can happen slow slowly, uh, which does not happen in the tropics because. In the tropics, the litter, well, the fungus and the bacteria and, and the soil life is active uh, during the whole year. Uh, and so uh, building a soil is, is a bit more complex. And actually, in the tropics, uh, it's better to have carbon uh, uh, in the form of trees. You can still have a, a little bit of litter, and it could have litter and, and decomposition. And but the soil, the turnover, it well, the soil won't keep it the same levels as in the temperate places. Um, it really depends if you know traditional forms of agriculture like creole gardens, as uh, they, they, it's basically agroforestry. So yeah, they 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 enrich the soil, and they they it does not contribute to to match to global warming or but um, but you also have you know this this view that we we have to have a fields that just look like the wonderful fields you can see in temperate places uh monocultures and things like that and so my guess is that it might be contributing and actually we have uh, quite big fields of sugarcane even if sugarcane is, is it's, it's a bit special because it's actually fixing, well, it's just one of the best crop in terms of carbon pumping. It basically depends what you are doing after. And if you just reintegrate it in, into the soil in one form or the other, well, it's enriching the soil. So basically there is, yeah, um, there, there is a high potential for uh, the tropics, uh, but only if you consider that soil pumping can, must must be done in the shape of trees of living trees and it should be done the same way in the temperate places because that's a place there is a lot of place if we just think uh, of a cropping system that's a bit different it would integrate more trees into uh, uh, agricultural landscapes yeah, so, it's, quite, yeah. it's worth noting for for those listening in who live in the temperate zone and not the tropics it's soil is a very different process in the two regions and yeah. there isn't in, in in the temperate regions you might actually develop soil that's several feet thick that actually has humic acid in it and in the tropics it's what centimeters it, it yeah. isn't it isn't really yeah, how it works yeah it doesn't yeah. work that way so even a, a big tree uh growing in the in a in a, ra in a rainy area in the, tro in the tropics in, in in arid areas trees 
and the tropics have extremely deep roots sometimes because there's no yep. water anywhere near them. But in the rainy tropics, the roots are right on the top and yep. they don't even bother going underground half the time. And and whereas in, you know, you just, it's, so when you see a tree fall over, it's a whole different experience than when a tree in Minnesota falls over and it picks up this huge amount of soil with it and there's a yep. giant hole and the roots are everywhere. In the tropics, it's more like uh, something that it isn't, it doesn't look like it was rooted to the ground ever. <laughs> You know, yeah, it's a really different experience. So yeah, yeah, it's, everything is more superficial in the tropics in the sense that the part of the soil that's really biologically active is very small, and especially here in the Caribbean where we have between four and five, uh, four and six meters of rain every year. That's a lot of rain. Yeah, so everything <laughs> is washed out. I mean, and and if you dig a little bit, well, I, you know, I, I'm as a gardener, I'm just putting the biomass everywhere, letting it decompose and, and, and it's working quite well. But even after years doing that, if I dig a little bit, uh, my my soil doesn't, it's, it's changing color very quickly. I mean, it's really a, a matter of centimeters and just under it's completely washed out. Hmm. So yeah, the wash off is, is very important and we have to take this into account. That's, that's sure. Do you have a lot of snakes where you are? Sorry. Snakes? Uh, snakes, no. Actually, we have mongoose, uh, okay. which were imported uh, to to get rid of snakes, and they just did it. Okay. So, okay. Yeah. <laughs> what, the, what, next, the next island, they still have uh, uh, venomous snakes. Yeah. Okay. That's in, a, in an African landscape, an African tropical landscape. Uh, people do not like plants unless they have to have them, because if you have a if you have an area with a lot of plants, there will be venomous snakes in there yeah. no matter what and they come out and attack you and so on so so people like to keep the, the bear so it's bare soil everywhere you know in a village or you know there'd be bare soil everywhere and plants start growing you just go over and, and kill them of course your 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 fields have crops in them um yeah there is no such thing anymore here yeah so yeah that's good so you so can is, kids out without having to worry about them getting bit huh well there's some mongooses everywhere though well, do they attack kids? <laughs> Here, no, we don't have to worry much about uh, agriculture. We we do have some insects or and millipedes that are venomous, but it's really you, you, basically there is no no danger. Mm -hmm. uh, so no, there is no danger anymore. You can do agriculture, uh, bear, food. Uh, there are uh, stingy insects, but uh, it's okay. You can survive it. So, if you could bring, if you could bring the things that you've learned either through your research directly or for just your living in this environment and the observations you've made, you know, to the world and say, do these things differently, whether it's yeah. in tropical regions or temperate or whatever. Just what, what, what are your lessons for our civilization, our global civilization? Well, you, you know, I've been trying very hard to get, you know those kind of crops that we are used to it, like tomatoes, cucumbers, well, uh, eggplants, well, all, all, all small scale, small plants that you can grow in, in, in clots and the amount of work that you need to put into your your plot is, is very high actually because uh, you can have caterpillars and in one night uh, the wall plot is destroyed or sometimes it's fungi and, and well, so I, I, it did take me a long time to try to get to this kind of agriculture, which was the one that I, I, that I knew about. Uh, and then I realized that basically if I plant a tree and the tree uh, becomes mature, it's going to, to, to yield a lot without effort. I mean, I have a, a mango tree that's uh, several decades old. Basically, I estimate that I have probably a ton of mangoes every year, more or less. I have the same with breadfruit, avocado. When the tree is growing it and, and and becomes producing, it's it's a lot of yeah, it's a lot of food. And basically, the, the effort is just planting the tree and just take care of it until it becomes you know old enough to 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 fruit. And it's it's really a life changer, I would say for me at least, because now I'm 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 planting 
more trees and trying to to put less import efforts into tomatoes or things like that and i think especially in the tropics there is a way to to, to design uh, cropping systems that are sort of passive systems in which once you have set uh, a, a plan of how to where to grow things and after that focus on on the plants that are requiring more efforts you can have both way and and still produce a huge amount of food and actually it it helps coming back to the the, the beginning of the discussion which was a bit about biodiversity and agrodiversity and basically it's not a you know most traditional farming systems do involve agrodiversity it relies on it uh, because it's one of the uh, safest way to produce food enough food so that you don't have to worry about you know if there is a crop that fail you know there is another crop that will succeed and some years it's you know it will be this crop the other year it will be the other crop and basically if you increase uh, diversity uh, you buffer uh, uh, risk and you you can you can feed a lot of people actually uh, it's really impressive in the tropics and and it's especially true that the limiting condition for agriculture is actually not space it's the workload you have to put into that space and it doesn't matter if you are a small small scale farmer because even small scale you can you can reach yeah you can produce a lot really a lot i mean yeah uh, so that, it's interesting so, so you're saying so labor is a, is a limiting factor in, in, yeah. in, in industrialized temperate agriculture that variation you're talking about, I think, is really important. That buffering, because the way that we buffer, you know, in in the plains and the Midwest, the way the agriculture is buffered is is on international markets. Yep. Not, and that doesn't help a given farm. It, it yeah. and, and so our farmers are always having a problem because they're growing one crop or two. Yeah. We have we have corn, soybeans, and now potatoes in Minnesota. That's it, and. Uh, a cup there there's some people who grow rye or wheat or whatever but they're just specialized that, that's because they're just specialized and and if there's variation there's always variation and uh your crop your crop your crops will either do well enough that the price drops or poorly enough that you got to borrow money yeah so you can't pay back the loans when the price drops so you're always in debt and it's always bad and uh, as opposed to the kind of buffer, and the, but it, it buffers, it evens out. It all evens out, and it's all handled by international futures markets and all that stuff. But that doesn't help the farmer. What you're talking yeah, about is taking that variation in hand on yeah. the farm itself and buffering against it. I think it's really but the other thing that's really important too, when you have uh, diverse crops, is that you end up actually spending a lot less money on your pesticides, because like if you spent, you know, here in Minnesota, we have so many native plants that we kind of pushed aside in order to bring in these imported plants that we consider a lot of it weeds. But if we allow like the, the native plants to exist along with, you know, the crops, then they, they have a lot of um, features that can help prevent weeds from taking over without relying too much on pesticides. Yeah, and it's even more that you can spare insecticides if you have a lot of flowering plants and weeds in your crops because they also attract and give you know pollen and nectar and shelter for uh wasps that are regulating pests you know uh, uh parasitoids and yeah it's amazing because actually yeah that's what we see uh I, I we we were I was doing it with a colleague over the last latest years, and basically we did let the flowers, which are otherwise uh, in invasive or locally invasive, but actually these these plants they do attract a lot of parasitoids and can help sparing you a lot of insecticides, and you 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 would not have to try to control pests if you let things you know get get in here and just do the job and it's it's working actually talking quite well i mean if, as long as you can accept that your plants at the beginning of the the issue like say with white flies you will have very well plants are in bad shape and 
I think there is one thing. <laughs> we, we, we want to have bodyful plants. I mean, farmers usually they do want something like that, a bodyful, healthy plant. And when the crop is not looking good, it does not mean that it won't produce. And so we had it because we are also trying to get things organic or agroecological and try to see if we can produce food in, in those conditions in the tropic, which is really not easy, but we, we, we just try to do it. And actually we, we had some controls and it was really amazing. You had to accept that for say one month or two, the plants would just look bad because of the pests. And we checked on the on the yield, it did not change that much. I mean, as a farmer, you could accept if you lose a little bit of your uh, harvest, if it's say 5%, it's not a big deal. It depends on, on the number of plants that you planted. If you're growing many plants, you will have enough anyway. And so you can, sometimes, I don't, I'm not saying you can do that every time, but sometimes it just happens, regulation happens. Mm -hmm. And you did nothing. You, it was no, you know, you you did not have to to have to, to work more in order to, to control this. You just let it happen. That's interesting. We are having a renaissance. I don't know if you get the news where you are. We're having a renaissance in the United States, in which people suddenly um, are really getting into pollinators. And it's interesting to me as a, as a somebody who knows like you know like you I've I've studied plant animal interaction and and you know I, I have some knowledge of this and it's it's interesting to see people in in the, in the average American's mind there is a species called bee and it is a pollinator and it pollinates all of the plants <laughs> and yeah. there's, there's so anyone listening knows there's hundreds of species of bees some of them only pollinate certain plants and uh, it just happens that some of our more common bees actually pollinate lots of things, but some plants can't be pollinated by bees and, you know, or any particular species of bees, any special pollinator. Anyway, um, not every pollinator is a bee. Not every pollinator is an insect. There are actually some mammals that do it, yep. like bats yep. and things. Uh, uh, so it's an incredibly complicated, incredibly complicated thing. But one thing I'm pretty sure of is the complexity of, of predation of one insect of another of plant predation of herbivory by insects and pollination reproduction is probably incredibly complex in the trop in a temperate zone and it's probably about 10 to 100 times more complex in a tropical zone so yeah. that again just like a, a, a typical minnesotan may not re notice when you go to mexico or someplace to visit the tropics that there's no soil there you might also um not notice that there are no swarms of mosquitoes there either I mean, I don't know. It depends on where you guard the tribe. But for the most part, um, where you have only five or ten species of fly, they come out in the gazillions, one after the other. When you have a thousand species of flies, there's a hundred species of fly predators, and at any given time, there could be fifty species of of insect visible to you, and each one is represented by a hundred or five or ten. Right? I mean, yeah. It's, it's, so the, the nature of the diversity is so fundamentally different. But because we're having this this this, this renaissance or this revolution of loving bees, I think is healthy. So now Americans don't mow their lawn until late in this year, so that the and I'm not sure if they know why they're doing that. I mean, I I would think one reason is because a lot of pollinators actually winter over in the lawn, and you don't want to kill them. But also, the, you get some flowers that grow if you just let it grow. You get some flowers there, so that helps. Um, and if you have a a, a a a bill written by like that Forever Green thing I told you about was exists because my representative Jeannie Cleborn, who is a state house representative, wrote a bill to get and it had existed already, but she got like millions of dollars for them to do the research. If you wrote a bill that said have the pollinators help the farmers, yeah, that would get passed. Yeah, sure. <laughs> if it made no sense, it would get passed. So I think that there's a there's a way to um to draw some of this diversity and and buffering against variation yep. linking it with diversity in the insects reducing pollination uh, you know reducing the, the use we're already illegalizing the indicatoids we're, we're legal, illegalizing certain pesticides now and so people are getting into that we're seeing a revolution now in our in at least the public attitude towards farming and 
pollination and natural systems a little bit. You know, mosquitoes are uh, pollinators. That's one of their functions. It is yeah. not, yeah. Yeah, yeah. spread viruses. They, they pollinate. You, you, you know, this is probably a place, well, it's a wrong place for pollination uh, biology. Um, we do have bees here too. And actually that's why I failed my corn. Because on islands, uh, so the, it's not as diverse as, as could be on, on the mainland uh, because it's remote and uh, a lot less diversity arrived and evolved here. Uh, we do have bees and sometimes they don't have enough flowers, even if we leave uh, everything uh, growing. in the, And at some point they will go on the corn early in the morning to get the pollen. And after that, you can have wind, but there is no pollen anymore in the corn. So you 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 won't produce. You won't have a, a huge harvest because the of bees. bees. Are preying on your corn pollen. Yeah. On, on grasses too. I mean, it's not only corn, but grasses. This yeah. was something I, I I clearly did never see before going here. Uh, is to see uh, bees pollin pollinating and actively actively foraging on on grasses. Because at some point uh, during the year, there, there is a shortage in food and they will go whenever there is pollen. And, and if it means it's on the grass, they go on grass. Even yes. if the, the grass species are wind pollinated and they right. don't need bees. So, so let me let me read that back to you to make sure I understood it, because that's really interesting. And our listeners want to know this. Grasses and corn is a grass are wind pollinated, not insect pollinated for the most part. So the wind yeah. is really good. They put out a lot of pollen, and the wind is really good at getting that pollen everywhere. Yeah. And the, the tricky part, what the grass has to do, has to evolve, is it has to evolve a way of carrying out birth control. The, all kinds of pollen comes into the grass, and then it figures out which pollen is its own species. That's an interesting little trick that happens. Um, when I was taking a, a graduate seminar in pollination, was at the time that in America, there was a big fight over abortion back in the late 80s and early 90s i was going to the clinics and defending clinics so we had when we had our debate on, on plant animal interaction it was about are these plants committing abortions just sort of as a fun theme anyway so if you meanwhile bees don't pollinate because they love plants they pollinate because they eat pollen or they eat nectar and the plants exploit the bees eating of either nectar or pollen to get pollen stuck to them and the bees that facilitate the plants by pollinating them survive better. So over time, bees become sticky and furry so they can yep. carry pollen around. So this is over hundreds of millions of years of evolution. So yeah. a, bee that goes, a bee that goes after pollen on a grass is a bad bee. <laughs> yeah, that it doesn't pollen help is supposed to, because supposed it's- supposed to be blown by the wind. Right. It's, not, it's not visiting the, the male, the female flowers after that. Right. So pollination does not occur. Um, but there is something else here is that, uh, well, uh, in, for many, many trees which produce fruits, uh, uh, so, so anonaceae uh, species, we have a lot here. And, and it's not pollinated by bees, but by oak moss. And usually, actually, yeah, the butterfly takes uh, the, the nectar and pollinates the flower, but it's not the main interest for uh, the oak moss. The main interest is just finding um, food for the caterpillar. So mm -hmm. they just find both, which means they lay, they lay eggs on, on the plants they will feed on. Mm -hmm. So it's a way to have fruits, but also you have to check that there is no caterpillar in the tree. Right. Uh, and, and most pollination systems actually are very close to that, in which pollinator species often highly specialist of some species, some plant species, they are actually parasites of these species either way. Right. So yeah, it's, yeah. yeah. This kind of variations are usually, yeah, can be very specialist and they involve uh, insects pollinating the plants, not that the plant feels better or reproduce better, but so that uh, it can reproduce itself either right laying eggs on leaves or directly on the flowers too. And this is why in, in, in North American agriculture, certain crops are pollinated by bees 
that are literally raised or brought to the fields. Uh, trucks pull up, they have a bunch of crates, and there'll be a species of bee that specializes in barley or something, and they go out and pollinate, and then they yep. put it back in the boxes and drive somewhere else. And yep. So improving bee, improving pollination, pollinator numbers, it doesn't necessarily get better pollination. It depends upon which ones you've got. Yeah. But it makes us more mindful of, of uh, protecting nature in the city, I think. Yeah. So I didn't I didn't cut my grass until just this last Thursday. Right. <laughs> it was in in um I got a lot of little purple flowers from creeping Charlie and then some white clover flowers and stuff like that. It was kinda kinda nice. But then after after the dandelion started going to seed, I had to I had to give in and cut it down. So our, 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 this is, yeah, yeah, dandelions, right? Anyway, this, is, this is also one thing that's that's probably great in the tropics too. Is that sometimes you have weeds just like everywhere else, but some of these weed species are actually edible. So mm -hmm. the times they become a, a an issue uh, to grow crops, uh, you can also just harvest them and just incorporate them into into your diet, and it it's yeah it's a way to to get easy access to food when uh, your crop have failed and actually it, it's uh it's interesting to see how many species we could actually eat but we don't because well it's we are not used to it and well it's also a way to produce food or to get food from a failed crop and sometimes in large amounts it can be very interesting it's uh, one of one of the things i learned also some sometimes I, I you know i'm just picking the weeds and, and making soup out of them and and it's contributing to a, a huge part of my diets because it's really easy food I, I don't even mind i mean my daughter will make teas out of um she'll experiment with different weeds and see how they see how they work as far as making tea so. a, a, a great example is a kinopodium in yep. north america so yep. uh, it, it was when Native Americans were growing food prior to corn, kinopodium yep. agriculture was probably spreading. Uh, and then corn came in and took it over to the point where very American focused archaeologists discovered that it, it, the kinopodium then became a weed that was called a parking lot weed. It grows up through pavement it's, it's in parking lots and it's just a weed. And and yeah. some very north, very north U.S. focused archaeologists discovered the kinopodium in archaeological sites going back four thousand years, five thousand years, and recognized it as a, as a species of plant that doesn't exist anymore because the corn had displaced it. They never noticed that this has been being grown in the tropical New World all along. It it never went away, just that it left North America, and now of course it's something that everybody eats. Yeah, it's a commonly eaten grain now. Uh, it's kind yeah. of specialized. Yeah. Actually, if you look at, at the history of weeds, it's very often that we we discover that weeds were actually ancient vegetables, mm -hmm. and we just forgot about it because either they are not the best species because it happens too. I mean, uh, some plants are edible only when you don't have enough food or no food right. at all. Right. And you, you will get to this and eat it because you have no choice. Right. Uh, and and many, many species are this way, but we forgot about it. But some of the plants, which became weeds, they are quite better and they are good. You can, you can, you can just eat them. And, but I think the, 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 the greatest issue about it is uh, there is no economical niche for that. Right. In the sense that you, you can have people like me to pick the species and eat them. But you won't be, you won't see it say, say sold on uh, on the markets. It's, right. uh, yeah, unless it becomes a fad of some kind. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, it was just an introduction <laughs> to, yeah. to many important issues. Uh, yeah. No, I, I think it, it was nice discussing all this, and I think there is a lot more to say. Yeah. Uh, and we, we did not really discuss about the way to to evolve to toward more sustainable agriculture. We just gave hits about how agrodiversity is actually a thing into 
it's it's one of the solutions and we did not discuss it much but uh well maybe another time I, I i would like to do that so i don't know mike if you know but lauren and i have had the conversations an ongoing conversation for many years more like 20 years maybe to 15 years oh. i don't know we've been we've been communicating on uh, by email and other ways for a long time and and uh, one of the th other thing we didn't even get close to talking about but i think we should talk about someday is the is the way in which you mentioned you made a mention of your knowledge of farmers year data right yep and i think you know what i'm talking about there are um institutions or academia as an institution isn't always fair to all kinds of research yeah and um you know you, and, and it depends on what's current and what's a fad and it depends upon uh personalities i think and i think it'd be very interesting to talk about how journals and peer review and yeah institutions operate because you're working and i have in the past worked also in areas where you know we're not doing some we're doing research that's really important and we know it's really important but it isn't curing uh, a viral disease but in fact what we have done is very relevant to things like covid and other viruses because we're looking at how uh, you mentioned that your 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 um crop failures are the result of a complex system that we have a hard time understanding you know what else is a result of a complex system we don't know how it works ebola outbreaks yep you know kind of how it starts it starts with some toddler eats some fruit from a fruit from a fruit bat but we don't know why the fruit bats get it we don't know what the the collection of environmental variables that could cause a yam uh the yams to all die off or some other thing to happen but also happens to cause ebola virus to spread among a population of fruit bats and then you have an outbreak that's here and another outbreak that's 600 miles away at the same time we don't understand that that could happen, happen with covid too i mean we there's things that we are we have thought about that we don't understand that are vitally important and we need yeah, to get more credit. that's completely true and, and i can predict something is that in the coming years we will see rocket scientists doing science about how uh, viruses diseases bacteria whatever are speeding over from the wild into society and everyone will just look at it and say wow it's so this will be rocket science but to us i mean we know that it happens and we are already working on things like that but sometimes trying to convince our viewers that actually it's important even if it's not the you know uh we are not working on, on the most study plants uh, the greatest study plants it's not rice it's not corn it's not you know it's not right it's it's a minor crop and and it's still important to do that work but then trying to get this published you always get editors saying oh, well you can always find a regional journal which in many places actually do not even exist right so it's a bit frustrating because well on one hand you're you're not we are really few working on some on these crops compared to thousands of researchers doing science on rice and corn and right. these are also important plants I, I'm, I'm not meaning that but the thing is that well it's still sometimes very difficult to get published for things that are considered of lesser interest mm. and yeah it's a bit frustrating I, I would i would venture we should probably get done here but i would venture that something like 90 percent of the square footage in institutions that deal with plants like universities 90 percent of the space is devoted to about five crops <laughs> yep, maybe yep. 10 maybe 10 crops and the rest of it all and the rest of it is devoted to the other three or four thousand relevant plant species <laughs> yeah 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 basically at some point you know every other colleague working on your uh on the arm species because there are not that many maybe right. it's what a few dozen but uh, you read you read nearly everyone and you you know people it's and even if you don't meet them personally you you read right. the papers so you know them and of course it's a, a small community but i mean it's it's all the more a pity that for most important crop species like potato sugarcane rice corn you know 
improving varieties and improving stocks and creating new varieties is becoming more and more difficult because you have to really pick for the small gene effects, the interaction between genes, that's, mm -hmm. that's very difficult to fix on plants because most of the genetic material of the additive effects have been retained already in the elite cultivars. Right. But for all the other crop species, amino crops, orphan crops, the half domesticated crops, we still have to do that work and it can be very efficient because there was no breeding or little breeding or right. only, you know, so we can we can get to the point where doing progress, improving yield in all these species will be very easy. You don't right. need to be a, a geneticist genius. It will work only with additive effects it's still here. Right. And the... it would require that we, we go back to all these crops and begin just doing the work of improving uh, varieties. It will be much more efficient than trying to improve, you know, the harvest of uh, of corn right. which which is becoming so difficult currently the people who uh, i mentioned before in the forever green program uh made something like a dozen plants into something you can't eat from something you can't eat into something you can eat in 20 or 30 years yeah that's yeah. amazing that's yeah. that's just because they had, they had all the science without genetic engineering they had all the science they had all the incredible diversity genetically and then they had a lot of students working on it. So anyway, yeah. Thank you for listening to Iconocast. Free edition, free version. Doesn't cost you anything, but really would help if you would like, share, and review on your podcast app. And that'll help spread the word so other people listen. We will be returning as soon as we can with another guest. So just keep this subscribed to in your subscriptions. And tell everybody you know that you found the greatest podcast ever. Well, you don't have to lie, but if you enjoy it, just let people know.